0: Jonathan Logan, thanks so much for, for joining me on this. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I think I've read a, tw- a tweet uh, recently about the shutdown of Crypto Hippies, and uh, yes. and and uh, and I I thought I thought, oh, this is this could be an interesting story given that Crypto Hippies is like a privacy preserving network, and I thought I oh, know I got to get hold of you. Um, this your name is obviously a pseudonym. Uh, maybe you can tell us a, a little bit about uh, about yourself, uh, that which you wish to share. Um, and yeah, apologies for the for the the lack of video. Right?
1: Uh, yeah. So the lack of video is all my fault um, because okay. I, I I simply don't like my face being recorded. So um, that's yeah, cool, what bro. to say about myself? Um, that's, <laughs> don't leak any those.
0: details. <laughs>
1: No, nah, it's, it's, it's more like uh, what what do you select that is interesting and what isn't. Um, well, I so spe- I also go, go under the the name the real smuggler. Yeah. Um, I've been in uh, to the communication privacy and security field since two thousand, I think, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I mean, I I, I ran a couple of uh, relayers before that, like mix ma- mixed mastery layers and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's hard to hard to really uh, pick what is of interest. I, I wrote uh, a relatively f- famous little treatise, um, Second Realm book on strategy. Um, I'm something like an agorist, um, or post agorist, actually.
0: Yeah. yeah, I don't know. So, um, so it's hard to select what. what people no problem, no problem. We can we can sort of narrow down hmm. on the, on the interesting. Uh, well, well, no, many interesting things, I'm sure. But one of the things that that really piques my interest at the moment is is um, how you guys came about with crypto hippies. So maybe you can like sort of like go into that. Uh, yeah. Like what were the what were the circumstances? What, why did you guys spend so much time and energy, you know, uh, committed into building mm-hmm. this? And then later on, I'd like to go into um, the set of problems that 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 arose sure. from it, and and also architecture. So in this in this sure. this podcast, okay. we can get raw details, so you can go really yeah, yeah. okay really okay. nasty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, um, so um, it, the the story of Crypto Hippie probably starts in. 2003, 2004. Yeah. Um. And at that time, I'm um. I make my money by basically doing tech consulting over IRC on uh an anonymous IRC platform. So uh, I basically spend my hands in front of the computer and tell people how to uh, administer Unix systems mostly. And uh, that was a fun time. Um. And I actually made money of it, which is amazing when you think about it. Um, because back back then it was it's, it's like pre Bitcoin times, right? Slackware. Like <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, we have more distros than just Slacker. But yeah. <laughs> um, the the interesting thing is that there was this um, this thing called Invisible RC project. Uh, which was an anonymous IRC hangout. And there were a lot of cypherpunks and uh, a lot of people from the digital cold economy and and stuff like that. And um, we had like an internal or multiple internal payment systems on that specific IRC server. And I basically uh, answered questions and then people gave me digital money for it. And so... I, I lived on that place, and one of my repeat customers, so to speak, was um, an outfit called Metropipe, uh, which at that time ran uh, proxies for um, for privacy stuff. Uh, so mostly the the usual um, SOX proxy here, HTTP proxy here, and uh, if it got really wild, it would be SSH tunneling, and um, they then uh, bought servers from me. So I, for a while, I, I operated like a server exchange where I would um, buy and sell servers, uh, rent them out, um, administer them, etc. And so um, then they asked, hey, can, can we do more than what you've been doing so far, you know, association, etc.?" And um we decided on um, creating an, an open VPN um, hop. So um, it's, as far as I remember, it's, I think it was the first one that was like sold on the open market as a privacy tool. Mm-hmm. And um, long story short, I operated that for a while and then MetroPipe went under, so they had, um, business problems. And one of the previous partners of, of MetroPipe, um, reached out to me and, um, he wanted to, to set up its own system and then that failed. Um, but it basically triggered the, the idea with me to, to do it myself as a business. And, um, then I was looking for the right person to do it with because I'm, I'm really not a business person. I'm I'm, I'm a tech person, but I'm, I suck when it comes to anything marketing and all these things. I, I'm really bad at that, like enormously bad. I'm, I'm, basically I do negative marketing, I think. <laughs> and um, so I was, I was looking for the right person, but also like the right mindset because um if you want to do something um, privacy-related, right, um, you're attracting heat. So it's it's not like um, any other business. It's, it's something where you are you're basically um, taking over the heat that the client would otherwise get, and um, that is part of the deal. Basically, you know, you're insulating the client, and um, you have to have a certain um, mentality for that and you have to have certain bellies for that for that to 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 work and there was a a dude that wrote a book um the lodging of a wayfaring man which was a a bestseller in the digital underground freedom whatever scene at that uh, time and he had published his book anonymously and i de-anonymized him, reached out to him and uh, said, let's meet. How did you and, de-anonymize him? <laughs> uh, stylometry. Uh, so I, I went over the statistics of his writing. And, <laughs> um, and then we met um, in a, I think it was February 2007 or something like that. We met uh, at a at a small hotel outside of Munich, had a few drinks, and basically talked about if you want to do something crazy. And um, Paul, Paul Rosenberg, who was the the, the mysterious person, agreed. And um, I think half a year later, we had our system set up, like the initial version. I mean, we went through four versions of the whole system um, in in our lifetime. Um, And yeah, and then we began. And first, it was relatively slow. Then we actually uh, had a few very good years. And then we ended that with uh, some very bad years. And then it all exploded. Oh, no, imploded, not exploded, imploded.
0: That's the story. <laughs> okay. So, that, that, yeah, I mean, you're sweeping a lot underneath the rug, rug there. Um, like, for example, um, what was what was the specific purpose of this? Was it to insulate other clients um, and provide so, them a platform for communications? What like what exactly is CryptoHip? So, so our purpose was always to
1: uh, allow people to use the internet um, in privacy, without having to give up too much of its um, functionality and comfort. So we wanted to have a fire system. We wanted a system that supported most protocols. So it was relatively easy to install, but at the same time would provide um, a realistic privacy shield for them. Right. And with realistic, I mean, you know, it always depends on your threat model, right? So. Um, it's not that we uh, protected people against the NSA or something like that. It's um, more like um, local government level plus um, normal data collection um, companies. So that's it. And we we basically only focused on on traffic anonymization. So we didn't uh, go beyond that, so we didn't create our own browser to to do cookie management or anything like that so it, um, it was just in, in a sense it was a very advanced uh, vpn service um, plus a few um how you call it convenience services so um, we um, had our own mail server which um, had stuff like headers scrubbing and all those uh, basic um, tools for for making privacy a little bit um, more achievable with email, um, byte alias support, so you could um, create an alias for basically every sign up you would do. Um, we had um, an XMPP server for chatting. Um, we had some cloud storage uh, for people. And uh, so basically, the, the the, the minimum pack of, of, of what people would um, require on the internet uh, these days you know the minimum services you would uh, expect and we basically uh, combined that into one bundle um, and yeah that's it
0: okay all right and all right and and, and I mean you had a number of customers that was paying for all the services uh, for a period of time and then it, yes. it it dropped off why do you think it dropped off?
1: Oh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, To a certain degree, it has to do with uh, two major issues. And um, issue number one is, uh, what's the sustainable market for privacy services? Um, And VPNs are are not purely privacy tools. So there's a, a lot of additional use cases to to, um, public VPN proxies. And the most important one is um, circumventing uh, geo IP locks. So um, being able to uh, consume media from from different jurisdictions. And that is by far the biggest use case for most people of of using uh, VPN services and since we had a very strict privacy first uh, policy, uh, our service was actually not good for that. So in the competition to services that uh, had a focus more on the demand to circumvent uh, geo-blocking, we lost out in the competition. Uh, So that is one major reason. Um, The other major reason is Um, That we had a very idealistic targeting of people, targeted um, older non-tech people as um, the focus of our marketing, and that was really bad. So that that basically broke our neck doing that, because um, it creates the most expensive customers you can have and they have the um, tendency to die off.
0: Yeah, that tends to happen with the older uh, poppy demographics. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yes. I mean, it was it was
1: really like, it was an idealistic um, decision, you know, it was this, um, hey, our service is easy enough to use um, for grandma people that are not Text savvy so and then you have grandma but the problem with grandma is grandma needs a lot of support and grandma really likes to talk and um, then you waste a lot of time on support <laughs> but you know their life story afterwards <laughs> um, so oh go on <laughs> so, so that was and it and, and sounds funny but it, it actually means that um the main cost of operating such a service other than than legal is um is support staff yeah and um you can
0: waste a lot of
1: money on support
0: stuff and uh yeah yeah and now now so i'm also going to be doing a little bit of a devil's advocate questions um uh, on behalf of maybe the audience what they're thinking like for example why is VPN not enough for um, uh, privacy-preserving uh, internet usage? Well,
1: if it's not enough, or if it's enough, it really depends on your threat model. You know,
0: okay. So it's,
1: it's, it's, not a, it's not a binary question and not a binary answer. So so um, how does one look well, at it then? How does one assess yes. this situation? Yes. So um, for a normal internet user, it is not enough for the simple reason that you're using a stack of technologies and um, the whole stack has privacy issues at some point. So um, let's imagine that you're using a web browser and uh, you're connecting with your web browser to some website, you log in with your real name, um, but while you're doing that, uh, somebody serves you an ad and puts a tracking cookie for that ad on on your computer. And basically what happens is that in the background, there's two unique identifiers that are going to be connected. That is your account of the website itself and the tracking cookie for the ad network. And then you go to a different website and you log in uh, with your pseudonym, um, but the um, website is using uh, the same ad network or the same ad broker or whatever. And then it will um, connect those two unique identifiers again. So and that is something that is um, non-trivial to battle. So one of the things we, we did there is uh, we did a lot of um, DNS um, blocking. So um, we would block um, ad sources, tracker sources, etc., directly on the DNS level. And if they were using unique infrastructure, we would also do that on the IP level. Um, that is how you can suppress a lot of it, but it's it's not there's no guarantee to that. You know, you, you you have to catch up with how their infrastructure is set up, who's on the market, et cetera. And um, in that catch up time, you will always have leakage. Plus there are simply uh, things that you'll miss forever. Um, so that is just one example why just VPN is not enough. Um, there are other things. There are things like browser fingerprinting. There are things like, um, the TCP IP stack uh, fingerprinting. Um, I mean, what what we did um, there is, we we never did anything against browser fingerprinting because um, that was completely outside of our abilities. Um, But what we did, for example, is uh, we would transparently take over TCP connections on the VPN and run them through our own stack basically. So to, um drop all uh, fingerprinting printing abilities um on on the tcp stack but um, the problem with that is each one of those techniques that you apply you, you can do similar things to to udp or so their udp fingerprinting methods um if you do that um you're degrading the network to a certain degree um because a lot of the hacks that software is using don't work anymore and it's those hacks that often make the difference between um, your videos play fluidly or they uh, stop every 10 seconds for half a second. Buffer. So, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, but as I said, you know, you have more fingerprinting abilities. You have uh, TCP fingerprinting, UDP fingerprinting. Um, you have latency fingerprinting. Um, you have. Um, Page call order fingerprinting, you have um, e tech fingerprinting, you have uh, cookies, you have browser fingerprinting. So there are um, probably a thousand um, ways to, to cre- create uh, links between your communication targets and you. So basically, uh, make a um, make a guess if you're the same person on two different sites, and if you then don't have um, uh, the right behavior because you're not using pseudonyms to log in but your real names, etc., then um, you are left. So um, it it always requires this uh, very. In the end, you really have to be um, aware of what you're doing. And just using a VPN will not create a magic protection. In the end, you have to behave in a certain way. Um, you might have to use different browsers on your machine and stuff like that.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. Now it, it is. This is a. This rabbit hole goes pretty deep. Um, but then some might also say, how about just using Tor? I mean, Tor is the condom of the internet, right? Would yeah, well, it is Would you yeah. agree with that?
1: Well, as I, as I said before, it's, um, it really has to do a little bit with um, for what use cases you need privacy uh-huh. for. Uh-huh. Um, the goal at Crypto was to make um, privacy protection a little bit invisible for the user. So um, you can use the internet as you did before. Um, you, can, uh, you, you can use basically every service, etc. cetera. Um, doing that through Tor is um, a lot more complicated um, because there's um, a necessary limit to the bandwidth that you can get through Tor. There's a necessary unpredictability of how much bandwidth that you can get through and how your latency looks like. There is um, a necessary limit on, on what services you can reach through Tor um because tor exit nodes have to protect themselves as well um so there, there's all of that of course and then on top of that um is the is the question of um how you do your trust calculations so when we started um we started i think before snowden even if i remember correctly and um before Snowden, people really believed that um, you go through a proxy, you go through Tor, and everything is fine because nobody cares. But the, the problem is that people, some people really care of, of getting their hands on all kinds of data. And that in the context of Tor uh, means that there are uh, continuous attempts to um, siphon as many data out of uh, tor as possible and because uh tor essentially is run by anonymous parties that is uh, relatively easy to do. so the the thing that you're risking as an attacker on tor is um that you're you have to set up new nodes you know but you'll you'll not uh leak that you're the nsa or something like that um and there's a lot of things you can get out of tor even um without being a, a dramatically big um, attacker So um, especially before HTTPS became the standard for 99.9% of all websites, um, a lot of Tor exit um, traffic was uh, basically captured. You know, let's see what people are communicating. Um, And there's actually a famous leak from Scandinavia where uh, a Tor exit note uh, got their hold on uh, a lot of diplomatic documents because they were communicated through Tor. Um, and they basically took that off the um, off the traffic. And then there are more active attacks you can run as a Tor exit node provider. You can try to strip SSL. Uh, you can try to force people to, to not use SSL or to use SSL with an untrustworthy party. Um, that happens quite a lot, and um, if you're good at it, it's extremely hard to detect the tree, um, and there have been enough cases of, um, of of basically all SSL traffic being uh, replaced, uh, like be, being proxied by using um, valid certificates from, from um, corrupted um, CAS. And um, I mean the good thing is that browsers are catching up on attacks like that by now. So you have uh, stuff like certificate transparency in, in Chrome that makes those attacks harder. But um, for a while, that was exactly what was happening a lot on Tor. And, uh, and essentially what, what you have is this playground for everybody who wants to try their hands at, at, um, at getting data, um, and that is Tor. So that's like the other side of Tor. You know, It's, it's great for, for playing around with those things. Um, that doesn't mean that Tor is not also a good service. But um, similar to to VPN, um, it it really depends on your threat model, on a realistic uh, assumption on how your behavior, uh, on what your behavior is, uh, what your goals are, um, to make the decision of, of what is the best use for you at this moment for this specific task. So it's, I'm I'm always a little bit uh, skeptical when. Uh, anybody comes around and says, okay, whatever, uh, our VPN is the solution for everything. Um, or uh, equally, Tor is the solution for everything. Um, neither is true. you know. You, you, and that is one of the issues of, of, of internet privacy in general is to actually do it well, you have to understand what you're doing. And people don't. People don't understand what they're doing. And even a lot of technical people Really don't understand what they're doing there. They don't uh, understand the complexity of the problem, and um, so what we're really doing is um, we're we're shifting probabilities a little bit, but not decisively. I would have to say.
0: Okay. So um, so you mentioned uh, CAs. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, CAs form a pivotal part of the well. I suppose the security of the internet. Um, maybe do you want to go into like the reason why CAs are problematic um, from a security stance? Sure. sure. Well, I, I wouldn't say
1: problematic. Um, can be problematic. Sorry, they can be problematic. Exactly. So, CA stands for a Certificate Authority, and um, the. The uh, use case that we have on the internet in most cases is X509, uh, which is um, what is the uh, design of a public key infrastructure that is underpinning most of our uh, transport layer security. So when you, when you see a green lock in your um, browser location bar, uh, that usually says that you're using uh, TLS or SSL, I mean the modern protocol is TLS. And um, how that works is that your browser makes a connection to um, a remote server. The remote server returns um, its own public key, and it returns a signed version of the public key, a signature on this public key that is created by a trusted third party. And um, that signature links the address of the website to the to the public key of the website. And um, given these uh, three um, sets of data, so the the signature that does the linking, the address, and the public key, the browser can um, initiate a a key agreement, essentially, um, sharing a private key between the website and the browser itself. And that private key allows you to to communicate privately, right, Um, and the the way the browser trusts the remote website is by that signature by a certificate authority. And certificate authorities have um, have a very interesting position actually because a uh, bigger um, public CAs have their own public signing key built into uh, operating systems and um, uh, web browsers, etc. cetera. And um, that is basically the uh, the way to print money on the internet, um, because uh, everybody needs um, needs a needs a certificate for for secure communication, and until Let's Encrypt and similar services came around, um, having a CA certificate widely distributed meant that you'll uh, never have to work again. And um, the the problem with with that uh, scheme is that it requires all the certificate authorities that are built into your system, into your uh, browser or or operating system, uh, to be trustworthy and in in two senses trustworthy. So they have to be trustworthy in how they operate and they have to be trustworthy in the sense of being honest. So um, honest means that um, they would have a definition on how they identify uh, their customers. And issue certificates. Um, And then um, they would also have to stick to those rules. And then the um, second question is uh, will they be able to actually protect their infrastructure so that uh, nobody can circumvent uh, those issuing rules? And the problem is that um, it is really hard to uh, protect a bag of gold. And even huge and very important certificate authorities have been attacked in the past, successfully attacked in the past. Um, and that has led to uh, bad certificates being uh, issued. So, uh, in, in the worst case, um, CAs have issued uh, so called subsigner uh, certificates without uh, domain limit, which basically allowed everybody else to become a CA as well and um, create certificates for every. Uh, possible uh, scenario. Um, and um, in the smaller cases, it uh, just has been issuing secondary certificates for stuff. And that can be a real issue. It's not just a, an issue for your browser communication or your email per- communication. It can also be uh, an issue, for example, for the automatic update uh, in your in your computer. So if if people remember Stuxnet and Google, um, they were actually using... Um, stolen, not falsely issued, but stolen uh, certificates to slip in uh, backdoors through the update process of your operating system. And so that is that is the general issue behind um, how we do, do public key infrastructure or how we did, because there's a change to that. So um, what is happening today are, are two main things. Um, number one is that um, Google has, um, is operating this thing called certificate authority which um, makes it much easier to find duplicate issued certificates Um, and that can be an indicator of attack. Um, And the second thing that is happening is that we're beginning to uh, instead of using CAs um, we're using the DNS system as a root of trust. So um, you can instead of having a signature from a certificate authority, you basically put um, your certificate into the DNS system and you activate DNSSEC. And then you can basically um, deliver proof of authenticity uh, over the DNS system and have the big, big hope that um, the DNSSEC stack is well-managed. And if it's not, we're all doomed and we're all going to die.
0: So, yeah, like, like, uh, you know, Dan Kaminsky uh, showed quite a while back that, you know, DNS systems are, are quite vulnerable to attack. Um, What makes you, okay. You know, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a fluke, like, like how, what's the probability of this DNS sex system, like, you know, standing up to, uh, attack.
1: Well, the, there are like two, three, three major issues to that. Um, mm-hmm. So, number one is that um, registrars can still create a scenario in which domain owners um, can be tricked into into using DNSSEC um, incorrectly. So that is um, so. Th- there's this thing at, at the end of life for for domains where you can basically replace um, the keys in a domain with the right timing. Nobody notices. So th- that is it's it's kind of complicated and not very likely um, because it basically can only happen like once a year or something like that. Um, but it's still. Um, and if you renew your domain uh, early enough, you, you won't be. Um, so that is an issue. Then there's the issue that quite frankly, most people are not managing DNSSEC themselves, but they outsource it to their DNS providers. So, and uh, you can still have DNS providers and change everything you want there. Um, and especially uh, queue rotation, doing queue rotation correctly is, uh, is a major nuisance on, on DNSSEC, and it uh, frequently goes wrong. And that also means that a lot of um, a lot of um, ISPs, etc., um, and a lot of operating systems and browsers, etc., are not really willing to to make uh, DNS a hard requirement for security. Which means that um, if the DNS records are wrong. Um, you might not get the correct error message that says, "Hey, there's an attack going on." Um, so that that is uh, a little bit of an issue. So on the on the client side, um, there's still too much noise on that system to uh, actually use it as a reliable uh, source of, of trust. And then, of course, there's the um, the signing hierarchy itself, um, which um, I mean, we, we have those, those big ceremonies for Q rotation, etc. There, and they're not very frequent, and they're actually done by people to, that really know what they're doing. Um, I would I would assume that if I, I would assume that if those uh, ceremonies have been attacked, uh, we have we probably have bigger issues uh, as well. We, we might actually have and not
0: know about it so um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would that would be that would be problematic indeed. The ghosts are walking through the system and we have no idea <laughs> which is happening yeah well
1: I'm, well, I'm kind of thinking like um if the DNS key ceremonies have been undermined, then similar things would be probably true for nuclear weapons, et cetera it's it's the the security standards applied there are very. Close. They're not the same, but they're close uh when it comes to complexity of attack. So um let's I, I, I like to sometimes preserve this um this last
0: grain of naivety to to, to be able to enjoy the world. Yeah, the human nature. <laughs> and like no, they somebody will stop somebody from pressing the nuke nuke launch yes, button, exactly. right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it Probably has happened a, a number of times yeah. in history, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jonathan uh, so okay um, basically we're sort of covering like the general areas of the uh, specific problems that going and doing a bit of a dive into each one of these things are there any other areas within the current infrastructure of the internet that you feel like you know should be sort of mentioned or spoken about or something that sort of nags upon you and like god damn it like is there anything like along these lines that you that you that you think of? Uh, that's a very broad question. I know. Um, I was just, the first thing that sort of comes to your mind, the first nagging thing, because I want to there, up there, a new chapter. I have of
1: three questions. I'll oh, uh, go for it. I think I have three things. So number one is, um, let's be honest, all our software sucks. Um, so software security is a, is a dramatic problem. And um, that is in, it's everywhere. You know, it's from from your PC to, there's no exception to it, you know. It's it's just as it is, and you will never have uh, privacy if there's no security. So the 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 thing in 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 digital privacy is um, you have to have trustworthy systems somewhere. They have to adhere to protocol, and they have to keep secrets. And if those systems are broken, they won't do that. And um, no matter of, you know, how great your white paper is on, on what could be built and whatever, if the implementation doesn't do it, you're doomed. And so that is something that that always should be kept in mind because in the end, it's somebody has to write that stuff. Somebody has to maintain that stuff. Um, don't if, if there's too much belief in the perfection of technology, you're missing the big point, and that is that in the end, everything is held together by uh, people. And um, it's people that uh, every day spend hundreds of thousands of hours to keep something like the internet running. And if those people would um, stop working for half a day, there would be no internet. Um, And that is something that has to be kept in mind. And then there's another thing that I really hate that is actually not about the shortcomings of the internet, but about people saying what the shortcomings of the internet are. Um, Because they're like, for years, people are running around and saying, oh, we have to change the architecture of the internet. Um, Quite frankly, I'd never heard a good argument there. Um, I think that a lot of people running around because they have no fucking truth how the internet actually works and never worked actually at an ISP or anything. Um, They've never actually read, um, you know, TCP IP stack uh, specifications or anything like that. So, I mean, yeah, of course, there are like a thousand implementation problems that um, have been overcome and will be overcome. You know, it's people that fix that stuff all the time, but you can fix a lot of things without fundamentally changing the infrastructure. Um, there's one single thing that I think is a shortcoming of the overall internet infrastructure or architecture. Um, And that's in being able to uh, have reverse route assurance and um, communicating um, the will to be a destination of, of traffic back to the source. So let me explain. So um, if you're on the internet today, uh, depending on how good your ISP is, um, you are able to fake your source IP address. So on, on every internet communication, you have the source IP and the destination IP address. And it doesn't matter what protocol you use. it's Those two things are always there. And um Reverse route assurance basically means that um, if you get a package, you would know that the source IP address is not falsified. So you you would know that if you send a package back to that IP address, it is going back to the same organization, basically. Um, Not necessarily the same computer, but it's going back to the same organization. And um, that is something that is really required to deal with denial of services uh, attacks. And um, the second thing that you kind of want to have is um, you as a destination of traffic, you would like to tell uh, every hop between the sender and you as a receiver uh, if you don't want to receive the traffic anymore. Um, and that the reason for that, again, is um, to battle denial-of-service attacks. Um, And that is a a feature that is, in general, completely missing because it is dramatically hard to implement. And it requires a few other things to be implemented first that we're still working on. So for example, uh, resource PKIs um, are are things that are required for that. they are in in progress, and they will solve another a lot of other issues. So, for example, um, routing falsification will be a, a thing of the past um, in a couple of years, uh, because all uh, routing updates will be signed. Um, but that just takes a while to be to be laid, uh, rolled out, because a lot of com- companies out there. A lot of countries are not uh, necessarily on the bleeding edge when it comes to running their infrastructure, which is fine. It's it's part of how the internet works. Yeah,
0: that, that was uh, actually, you just helped me a lot there with uh, specifically, um, you know, being able to um i'm i'm implement i i am i am going against your uh, perceived you know your your attitude like you mentioned on point number 2 is like uh, those people that like go and create new internets and stuff like that they don't know anything well yeah i'm i'm doing that <laughs> <laughs> why and, uh, uh, uh no we can get into it later but I, I'm just, <laughs> I, i'd ra- i'd rather get rid of the emotional charge first and then <laughs> But, but the the point, the, the the two points that you just mentioned, they're like actually very useful for me. So thank you for that. But you mentioned sure. three points. You said the first one is software shit. The second one is a bunch of guys going out there and creating stuff, and they don't understand what they're doing. What was the third one?
1: Um, the the third one was the um, reverse router. The reverse
0: route. Okay. Okay. Being All able right. to communicate
1: thing back uh, how bad it is.
0: Okay, yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean. Okay, we can go into each one of those things like massively. Like, fuck. Even the first one. The first one just makes me quake in my boots. Just how shit it is. I don't even want to go into that. That that cesspit. But okay, so I'm going to open Um, up the next chapter of questions, which is okay. okay. (laughs) So, Jonathan, if you were to, if you were to have some sort of a magic wand, and you know, go back to the 1960s and 70s, when 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 these, uh, you know, uh, packet switching networks were being created, um, with the knowledge that you have now, what would you, what concepts, what, okay, remember, um, like, for example, some programming languages, they introduce a, a language concept or a, like a paradigm mm-hmm. or something, which removes not just a bug by itself but an entire class of bugs yes right so so what concept would you introduce to those guys back in the 60s and 70s and 80s and say okay we need to have this and it's going to remove an entire class of of bugs and problems yeah
1: um i actually think that the the most meaningful thing and to change, and still to change, actually, um, is the, the size of addresses. Um, a lot of our, our, our security work is about um, establishing a link between a cryptographic key and an address, and um, projecting trust on that link. And the main reason why that happens is because you cannot use the cryptographic uh, signifier directly as uh, an address.
0: Dude, I'm about to give you a sloppy kiss, man. I'm about to give you a sloppy kiss. You better watch out.
1: (laughs) So what I would probably do is... um, I mean, it's unrealistic because in in the 60s, a lot of the choices that they made were based on um, limitations of hardware. So there there were things that you couldn't have done back then. Um, And even today, um, going from 128 bits IP version six to 256 bits, which would be really nice, um, is probably something that would cause dramatic issues on the internet. And the other thing that you still haven't solved for that is routing complexity. Um, So the the issue with with, uh, cryptographic addressing is routing. So, And that means for me that um, while that would be really nice to have, um, it would have been completely unrealistic to do it in the 60s. And it might actually be unrealistic to do on a large scale today. Maybe, you know, three, four more more cycles, you know? And then, then we can do it. But the problem is you, that also requires um, replacing a lot of capital that is there. Um, so a little bit of a Cisco router, a little bit of a Uniper router. Uh, you, you basically have like a, a sports car standing there. And you don't want to replace that every year. Uh, there, you're really happy when your culture makes it for ten years, you know. And um, so, realistically, while I would love those things, they would have required a different history. So, um, I there's no real thing where I would say we should have done that completely different, because a lot of the the learnings that we made in between, a lot of the um things that we developed in between were dependent on on those initial choices. Mm -hmm. And those initial choices might actually have been what saved our ass. Perfection is usually not a good idea. (laughs) Perfection is something that usually bites you in the ass because um, perfection doesn't give you wiggle room. And wiggle room is really what you need to, to progress. You need things to break to be able to progress.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, what, there's a saying like human human beings advance uh, either with like war or you know like famine or something like that. Only yeah. only big catastrophes cause human beings to advance. <clears throat> now, it's very interesting that you that you brought up uh, you know making cryptographic keys addressable, and then you immediately went on to. The routing issue of this. Yeah. Uh, what the thing that I'm working on actually does make cryptographic keys addressable. So it's like mm-hmm. that information. I'm I'm imme- just with that information alone that your public key, mm-hmm. the, the network routes the packets based on this information, yeah. and um, you know, it, but just by having virtue of uh, the key, I can ensure the the, the strong privacy, uh, yeah. strong security associated with it. Um, yeah. And, and as you rightly mentioned, routing is a bitch, routing is a bitch. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it from a, a point of using Bayes algorithm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's got a, you know, Bayes has got a, a, a strong history in being able to find where something is not. Yeah. And from there you can sort of narrow it down to where it, yeah would be, <laughs> you know, people have found like sunken ships, or, or yes. mass and doubloons, you know, the gold doubloons, uh, at the bottom of the ocean by using Bayes algorithm. So, yeah. you know, if you've got uh, um, uh, a distributed network of homogeneous nodes, that all uh, run this Bayes algorithm, and you know, information passes through and ro- they can actually start to uh, train their, their, you know, their, their, their Bayes algorithm to determine where is the best place to forward this type of um, request in future so yeah. yeah like yeah well the 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 interesting
1: thing is um there, there have been like uh, i don't know two two dozen attempts on, on how to do cryptographic routing and um or using cryptographic keys as uh, addresses in routing and the issue is that um, it always requires um, a, a form of mapping because the topology of your of your network and the um, the the the, sem- the semantics of your key have nothing to do with each other. And that is different on the internet. On the internet, there is a close link between address and topology, and that makes um, it very very efficient to route things on the internet. Um, because of that that uh, link so you, you have um, you have a structure in the addressing and you have a, a structure in the how um, routing information is um, distributed in the network so um, on the internet you don't distribute routing information to every node because you don't have to um, but instead, of what you do is you, you only distribute it to the edges, uh, to to the edge routers, basically. That those are the ones that really, really need it. You know, they they have to connect um, the various networks within the internet because you know the internet is a network of networks. And um, the funny thing is that a lot of the the information that is distributed there is actually not just a technical protocol, but it's a reflection of um, of um relationships between people and organizations so there's a there's a very human um, and a very economic layer to uh, how the internet is actually interconnected and um that allows certain optimizations and and uh, it allows um certain resilience etc etc that uh, a purely um a, a purely technical system, is, it can hardly uh, replicate. Um, because the, there's this, I always say that, that humans are the thing that, that keeps the world from going into chaos. So we are anti-entropy machines. And um, it's the humans in the loop that, that take out the entropy there. And um, that is something that is really hard to replicate with, with code alone. And then again, you have the the topology issue. Then um, you don't have uh, a semantic in your in your keys that maps to the topology of your, your network. Then you have to to, to create a mapping that, that creates this artificial topology and makes it um, findable. You know that is what addressing is about. And um, the efficiency of those systems will. There everything we can do there has quadratic at least quadratic complexity. And if you look at the size of the internet today, um we cannot do quadratic complexity routing on the internet because we simply don't have enough processing power for that, and not enough bandwidth because the um the most efficient routing algorithms are quadratic as well, if you cannot use the the topology as well. So that is is an issue. So um, unless there's a a great breakthrough in the future, which hopefully will exist uh, someone, um, I think that these systems will necessarily have to stay within uh, a couple of thousand or hundred thousand notes. They're not a real replacement to what we have on the internet, which they don't have to be. That's another thing. And I I think that um, what what people often um, underestimate is that you can build secure things on top of insecure uh, infrastructure. And um, you can even break a lot of base assumptions about the internet. And still have a working systems. So we do that all the time. You know, I mean, um, TCP is actually something that that breaks the base assumption of the internet. So in, instead of um, treating communication as packet switched, um, we're suddenly having streams. You know, um, and yes, they're um, expensively simulated, but in a way they they go against the the grain of what the nature of the system really is, and they still work dramatically good you know and um we even approved on, on top of tcp and, and created additional protocols that are dramatically better than tcp and um what i actually think is that we have to learn one more thing and that is that the addressing and the physical distribution of the internet is not really a limiting factor it is um it is just a substrate on which we build. And we can introduce very different notions there. So for example, what I'm I'm considering the future of the internet to a large degree, at least for a lot of applications, because in the end, it's always about applications. Um, I actually think that um, public message broker infrastructures will uh, dramatically change how you're using the internet. Uh, I think that, there will be a point where we overcome um, the whole model behind HTTP and go from a, from a client-server connection-based whatever internet to something more of, um, let's say, a
0: data-driven internet. Where, Expand on that. Um, to the best you can. Yes, uh, uh, it's it's a hard thing to explain. Of course, I know. Um,
1: uh, So um, today, more or less all models are about um, you wanting some form of information and you go to the place where the information is, which might be very far away, and you tell that place to send you back the information. And that uh, sounds very logical. But um, if you multiply that by 100 million, that's not as logical anymore. You, know, you have 100 million uh, connections all going to more or less mm-hmm. the same destination saying give me that kind of information. And what you could do instead is um, you could make the information travel towards you. Um, so um, let's say that uh, you and, my, and me would both be in Hong Kong right now. And um, you would make a request to Google for a certain kind of information. And instead of that information being just available to you, it would actually travel towards the edge. And if I make the same request, uh, the the, uh, information is served from the edge. Right. And um, the same thing is uh, if you and I then want to communicate, uh, via Google, um, we might not uh, have to go through Google directly. Like, have the sole link to the data center in Singapore, uh, but instead, um, the 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 traffic would um, find a route closer to home. Right. And I'm not talking about peer-to-peer here, but I'm talking about is uh, distributed messaging infrastructures, which have this ability to to communicate interest through the network and drought messages based on interest and allow things like subscribing to interest, et cetera. And since most data that humans um, communicate um, and use, like 99 point something percent of all data, is not unique data. It is data that uh, a shitload of other people are interested in, in as well. Yeah. And um, there's the the... And that is a change from how the internet was used in the beginning and how, um, for what it was built in the beginning. So the the initial use on the internet is really about these unique data streams um, that where data is communicated that is not or where interest in that data is not uh, a common thing. But today that is not true anymore because uh, the internet, to a large degree, is a consumer good, and we consume the same data and. That means that it is far more interesting to bring the data to the edge based on interest. And you can even do things like interest modeling. You can route by interest. Um, You can make assumptions about uh, interest indicators that you receive from certain nodes in the network and make predictions over, who else in the network and where else in the network that interest might come up. And um, that, is, that is where I think where a lot of the, the future of the internet will be. So in, instead of um, considering it as um, as a request driven uh, uh, system of communication, it will be more like an interest driven um, network of communication. And uh, we already see that, so I mean,
0: um, CDNs, the, uh,
1: well, CDNs is, um, is an example for it, but it's not a very good one, I think. It isn't because yeah. uh, they they aren't um, interest routed. Um, yeah. But um, a, a good example are um, push messages that you get. So uh, what you do when you install an app on your on your phone is um, you're communicating interest. And you become part of uh, an interesting, interest addressing system um, where the data already knows where it has to flow because you already communicated interest. So there's no, no request in the background all the time saying, hey, give me new information, give me new information, give me new information. But instead there's one communication that says, I'm interested and uh, every other push message afterwards. As a response to that first initial demonstration of, of interest, um, yeah.
0: Okay, so uh, I might I might be detecting a conflation of two things which might be incompatible with each other. And give me a moment to try to explain this. So, um, is there an element of pub sub going on there? So, um. You know, you would subscribe to certain topics, and then from then on, then on out, that messaging messaging hub would keep forwarding that that tagged uh, interest data to you, and then you would unsubscribe uh, when you're no longer interested. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then the second one is um, you you were speaking about information-centric networking. Um, so information-centric networking means that uh, well, if if Mm. okay to to expand the explanation a little bit if you imagine the internet uh, as an hourglass uh, you know there's the sand in the hourglass and you turn it around then there's the narrow waste right the narrow waste at the moment on this current internet is ip and um everything below at the bottom of the bottom of the narrow waste um well, both sides of the the, the hourglass CIP the applications need to CIP the uh, the the infrastructure that moves the data needs to CIP. So the bottom side of this internet is all that, all that which moves the data, uh, and on top of the hourglass is all that which actually uses the data. So it would be in the form of like you know email browsers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Would be on top of the. The, the hourglass uh that explanation might be a little bit yeah i think you can get it though but the point is that both sides see the the, the ip address by using information-centric networking we actually shift the narrow waste to be essentially the cryptographic hash the, the cryptographic um, public key um, No, no no it doesn't have to it doesn't, it doesn't... Have to. no it doesn't have to
1: so um there's no cryptor- cryptography so far that, that got into into the, the system at all. So the when you're when you're thinking uh, data-driven networking, um, be the name of the data is it, well, not even the name of the data. The only thing that really matters is the authenticity of the data at some point. Um, well, you and need crypto the authenticity- for that. yes, you need, but you don't need that for anything. Until you already have the data in your hand, true. So, true. Um, yes. so it, it is basically um, an after the fact uh, authentication that you can do. And um, if you are really concerned about attacks on that system, um, because of this fan out effect that you have everywhere, it's very efficient to do the authenticity verification on every uh, step of the way. Because you have a, a use multiplier, you know, because there's yes. a fan out on the end, you always have a use uh, multiplier. So it really makes sense to make um, authenticity verification uh, part of every single hop yes. through which the, the data travels. Hmm. And um, you basically stop bullshit data at the source uh, doing that um well not bullshit data but um bullshit data falsified, <laughs> f- falsified authenticity <laughs> so um so y- you can basically it's it's not routing it's filtering you know yes. it's like um and there are actually interesting um possibilities there because um we're talking for example a lot about blockchains right so And the interesting thing with blockchains is blockchains are probably the most inefficient database ever created. And um, they are basically completely useless with one exception. And that is um, unique mappings of authenticity. That's the one thing where you actually need a blockchain. So (laughs) everything else you better do somehow else. But for that, blockchains are are the perfect solution, but they don't scale. But the thing is you don't have to scale them as much anymore if you have this filter at the source approach. Um, Because it's it's mostly a a read-oriented and repetition-oriented use case. And so it basically would allow you to to introduce your proof of, of authenticity once, and then it could be easily reused again and again and again um, without actually increasing the load uh, of, of uh, the blockchain, basically. Um, so you would probably um, end up with a system that did whatever, 100 billion transactions total in its own lifetime, in its whole lifetime. And that is not that much. You know, that is something that we can manage. And... Um, yeah. So, but an interesting thing to, to look at, just as an example, because there's a company that's actually um, playing around with um, public uh, message based infrastructures, and that is uh, syndia.com. Um They have so this, spell uh, spell them, please. Symbian. Hey, And since I'm not really good at uh, keeping names, I shall better look that quickly up. Um, it's spelled uh, S Y N A D I A dot com. Okay, Synadia. So Sunadia dot com. So, um, and they have a, a, a an offering that's called NGS, uh, which I think stands for uh, Nets Global Services, which is this um, publicly subscribable. Um, uh, message broker it, um, infrastructure, and um, it allows you to do things like, um, of course, communicate with your own devices without punching. having to know where they are, etc You don't need net punching anymore, you know, because it's a uh, you're basically becoming client to a distributed infrastructure, um, and all the routing is interest based. You know, it's well, publish subscribe. So, um, but it has this interesting feature that allows uh, isolation between domains, uh, it's multi-tenant capable, but it also allows you cross-tenant communication by basically offering your data to, to other clients. And that is a highly, um, highly interesting way of looking at a lot of communication. So, um,
0: yeah. I, I didn't know that, I'll, I'll have a look at that. Um, yeah net- nat punching is something I've been thinking a lot about this 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 protocol of of that I've been working on um it's n- not as easy as it as you know some people might say i, I am aware, yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard about that problem yes. <laughs> oh just offhandedly you know. <laughs> it's okay. yeah. um so now did you ever think about <clears throat> okay so the, during the design um of crypto hi- hippie uh, did you ever think about going off into these um these these more uh non run of the mill protocols in order to to do this or or has it always ever been to make sure that that you it's just bog standard services on the internet to make to give people access to bog standard services on the internet, be, uh, while being secure. Um, or did you ever have you ever thought about going off into these um, uh, other sorts of protocols?
1: Um, no, and there's a reason for that. So um, the the topology of your network. Um, has strong implications on uh, privacy. And um, for privacy-preserving systems, there, there are basically two approaches, uh, approaches you can make. You can uh, create a, a peer-to-peer network, or you can uh, create um, a funnel network, um, and or a centralized network. Let's, let's be easy uh, to be in the beginning, so uh, a centralized network. And those are like two almost ideological um, choices that you make there. But they they are based on two ways on looking at the privacy problem. So the the peer-to-peer approach is based on observability of links. So it makes the assumption that an attacker cannot observe all links. So you increase the number of links. Um, And the funnel approach or the centralized approach is uh, based on the um, on the assumption that the attacker cannot distinguish um, communication. So th- those are the two different ways of, of uh, looking at privacy. And um, just to explain the distinguished part is um, you have, um, you have two messages coming into a black box and you have two messages coming out and you being able to as an observer to say which message uh, that came out was uh, co- is connected to which message coming in that is the, the the question of distinguishability so and um, if you don't trust the black box you, you just you know put multiple black boxes behind each other that are from a different trust domain you know they're operated differently by different people run different software etc etc but adhere to basically the same protocol um, and that, so the, the latter part, uh, like these centralized black boxes, um, there is, um, there's an upside to that. And the upside to, to that is they are not just very efficient, but they're also provable. So um, there's a, you, no matter what assumptions you make about the attacker, you can create a system that does not leak information that leads to distinguishability. Um, so you you can build a system where you can where you can make um, a very well reasoned um, argument about how private that system is, uh, because all the information to, to actually make that uh, judgment is contained within the system. So it's contained in the protocol and it's contained in the operators. Um, so you can make that that um, that judgment. On a peer-to-peer network, you cannot. Uh, So if your assumption on a peer-to-peer network is um, the multiplication of links, then you're making an assumption that is actually unprovable, that is the unobservability of links. And um, to be exact, we already know that it's a false assumption because the observability of links is um, latest since Snowden. We should know that uh, that is what it's all about, is observing links. Um and if you are uh, working in, in the internet networking industry, you actually know already that all links are, are seen um, because we have stuff like uh, trading netflow uh, information because it's, um, a relatively important thing to, to battle denial of service attacks and, and other sci, uh, kinds of cyber attacks. So uh, there's a, a global market on, on trading uh, NetFlow uh, uh, tuples. Um, so that basically means that um, with the exception of uh, edge links, like uh, ISP to individual uh, customer, um, more or less all other NetFlows are publicly available and that includes all infrastructure you could build to build a privacy-preserving system. Uh, hence, the assumption of uh, going on un- unobservability of links is a false assumption. It's actually one of the critiques one could leverage against something like Tor is um, because it has too many nodes that makes it insecure um, because um, the the question of, uh, of indistinguishability um, becomes uh, weaker and weaker the more you spread uh, traffic out over links. So um, what you really want is you want as much traffic going into your black box um, as possible because it um, increases the set of alternative outgoing messages. uh, So basically, you you increase the anonymity set. And um, especially because um, privacy is a multi-round game that makes a a real difference. Because uh, things like the the simple question of are you online or are you not online can uh, take this momentary uh, anonymity set and cut it in half. And then you repeat that again, and you cut it in half. And you can repeat that again, and you cut it in half. So most systems actually, in reality, um, do not um, provide you multi-round privacy. Um, Because after latest a week, um, you become statistically distinguishable. And so it it makes a lot of sense to have this huge anonymity set that spans Across those uh, on-off times, you know your anonymity set has to be big enough that it covers your time of sleeping. Basically, I mean it's it's less of an issue today because uh, you, it becomes feasible to, to create always online systems, but um, or it becomes more feasible. It's it's not really feasible, more feasible. Um, but so that is the the, the reason why. Long explanation, short again. That's the reason why um, we haven't um, chosen a lot of the um, more arcane academic protocols, because the 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 science of anonymity is actually well established. So it's not it's not something that um, we don't know how it works. We know how it works since the eighties. So to to be very exactly, we, we actually know the theory uh, behind it since Shannon. You know, so um, and you you take that and you apply that, and then you become depressed. And then we go into the 80s, and then we we figure out that there are things like mixed networks. And since the 80s, we, there's only one thing we're trying to do, and that is increase the usability and decrease the cost. But the 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 theory behind it is well established, and. Um, there, there are actually enough proofs out there that um, show that a lot of the arcane protocols cannot work. They they are um, they are impossible from uh, a mathematical standpoint. There are proofs against them, and uh, still we try it again and again. And one of the reasons, of course, is because we hope. And the other reason is academia, um, but. Um, the, the, the real thing we would have to do is actually not uh, develop another arcane system, but um, we have to fix the main problem. And the main problem is uh, user experience. And part of that user experience problem is actually request-driven communications. It would be so much easier to have interest-based communication and anonymizing that than request-driven. Uh, and the the reason for that is there's um, an expectation of response. So you make a request and you want a response, and that response has to fall into your attention span. And um, with a lowering attention span in the uh, population, that becomes more and more of an issue. So you have to have less latency. Um, in an interest-driven uh, network, you have the information before you actually look for it, So that's something you basically out-optimized human psychology at that point. Um, And that could work. But uh, if you take the the standard three-second attention span that normal humans have, uh, or worse, actually, um, we we actually run into a psychological issue that conflicts with privacy. So we have to change that. That part is the, the thing we have to solve.
0: Good God, man, I I have not heard an explanation so clear and to the point on that. So you mentioned that, what was it? They're not the anonymity, the observability of links. So the current internet as we have it um, from ISP to every other ISP, um, we are absolutely, we're completely aware of all those links. Um, yes. but but from the ISP to with a, in- with a
1: very few with a very few exceptions. So there are a few black sure. holes out there, but sure. um, let's say ninety five percent of the internet, uh, we know every single um, connection going on. Right, like every every UDP session, every TCP session, every right. ICMP repetition.
0: Yes, yes. So now, now, now just, to, just to sort of make a connection here, uh, you mentioned that if you fundamentally have an interest-based um, uh, uh, network,
1: mm-hmm.
0: with that, uh, let's call it a concept, with that mm-hmm. concept you would be able to allow the very edge of the network, i.e. those individuals connected to the ISP, to be able to start connecting with themselves, not via an ISP. And then what would happen is that the observer... No, no, no.
1: They still need, they still need an ISP. They still need an ISP. Mm-hmm. But so what um, the difference between request-driven and interest-driven is, is that in, ah, in, in okay. request driven, you have to travel through the whole network. Yes. You know you, you have to um, um, gap a large distance with interest and you have to do that per, uh, for every pair of uh, potential receiver and or potential uh, requester. But with interest uh, driven networking, the, um, the distance um, becomes is it, still uh, the same for one request. Yes. But for every subsequent request it becomes shorter.
0: And it basically
1: that. terminates on the edge.
0: So yeah. I, I understood that. I understood that. Um, so like yeah, let, let's say let's say you publish a blog and you're in the United States. Um, I'm gonna yeah. my my interest, my interest request thing is gonna go all the way across the world to find it and then draw and then pull back that data. And then maybe my next door neighbor, and I tell my next door neighbor, I say, Hell man, this 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 guy's written a good blog. And then when he wishes to get that data, the request or the interest is just going to come to me. And because I have a copy of it, it's not, you know, it's not a really? cash system. It's not a cash system. huh? This This data doesn't actually have a home because it's already signed. It's already, I can determine, with yeah. a, 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 I can determine the provenance. I can determine the integrity and optional security, well, security, not necessary, just the signature on this. And it would be copied to them. Yeah. Is that what you mean by uh, interest? I, I would,
1: yeah, I would, I would make it a little bit less idealistic. There's a, so there, there's basically, um what I think where the data ends up to be, is edge minus one. So it's not on your computer, but it's on the computer that uh, the like the the first hop that you and your neighbor share. That is where the data will be. So um, it's uh, look at it as understood. Um, you, you know Netflix, right? So how yeah. does Netflix actually work? Netflix uh, Netflix works by having a pretty huge. Uh, storage and streaming servers at every big uh, ISP on the planet. So, yes. and not just one per ISP, but basically one per city, you know. And um, they don't usually have the the whole um, their whole catalog on it, you know. But what they have is they have the most requested shows, and they generate this most requested shows by two things. Number one, they know what is going to be hyped soon. You know, and they they can measure that in two ways. Number one is the marketing budget that they put into it. So if they put a lot of marketing budget into a show, they distribute the show to the edge everywhere. So because there will be a lot of people that are just gonna try it out, you know. And then the other thing is they actually know what happens in one time zone. You know, so they make a release, they see the interest in one time zone, and then they know, okay, we have basically this, uh, this rate of request for such certain show. Um, it's likely going to be similar in another time zone where people are still asleep, they can't watch yet, right? So they distribute the stuff to the edge. So when people start watching, it is already on the edge. So that is one of the ways they can do it. And the second thing they do is the moment you are requesting a show, from something like Netflix that is not on the edge. They will cache it on the edge, just in case that somebody else has the stupid idea of also watching the same show. And then the second one will have a better user experience and their costs are driven down. It's not just about, oh yeah, um, it, the, there's no buffering, you know? It's also about their costs are dramatically lower if they don't have to deliver from the depths of their infrastructure, but uh, instead can deliver from the edge of their infrastructure, yeah. and it's the same thing. So uh, imagine something like um, like a Netflix type, um, relatively intelligent CDN that is public use, that is that is basically um, operated as an open system. Yes, you are paying for it probably, but um, it's an it's an open system and an open protocol.
0: Right. Okay. So, so this is, this is okay. Now the the next question I want to uh, um, sort of lead. Okay. So this is this, my question that I was asking a little bit earlier on assumed exactly this. So, Mm -hmm. um, so with this concept of interest, um, uh, data or requesting for data, which can actually flood towards back to you and actually start to spread wherever there's interest and they might have, Uh, persistent or even you know it could be least recently used buffers right so like the stale data just wipe that stuff out it's it's fine Uh, and then now we now we solve the psychological thing the thing is like how big a least recently used buffer do we need in order to maintain you know like the to go with the human psychology aspect okay that that's that's a heuristic we can tweak so Assume that we have an interest-based um, uh, data network. Now, what will happen is that we can now start to create links on the edge of the network. Now, keep in mind, I might decide to pull a twisted pair from myself to my neighbor. And I don't sure. even need that that, that single sure. hop. So, so sure. I mean, I could start shooting lasers from my apartment all the way over to there. And then... I know, yes. I know. It's now we always start getting a little bit hacky over there, but assume this is the case. Like I could set up a, a rogue Wi-Fi network, which which function six it. is the perfect choice for that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see. So so at that point now, now we start to lose the observability of the links. And this introduces a <laughs> in concept an ideal world. In a, in <laughs> hey, man, the fundamental technology is there, which allows it, you see? Mm. Because currently, like TCP, IP, all of that stuff, it's difficult to do that. The technology, <laughs> this interest-based stuff needs to be able to operate on, on like a broadcast network. Like currently, the problem is that you know, we've got 99 receivers, uh, 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 100 receivers, and only one responds and says, yes, that's my packet." you see? You want to have the technology such that everybody no, no, can... Look- no, no.
1: Uh No, no, no,
0: no, no, Uh no. So I
1: I, I fundamentally disagree on that. So um, there are, how do you say that? Um, There's an economic reason why the internet looks like it looks today. Uh, It's efficiency. So um, the network topology follows efficiency. And um, mesh networks are not efficient. Plus they have um, a cutoff horizon after which they' are too complex for anything. And the problem is that um, y- you, b- you basically have two issues um, in a mesh network, um, in a, like a realistic mesh network and not about a simulation. And um, the realistic issues are two. And number one is every link costs money. And number two is, Um, every link has to uh, cross distance. And there's a thing with distance, and that is at a certain point, a direct link cannot cross distance anymore. So you and me realistically cannot have a direct link. There's no way of that. So even if we want, I mean, yes, if, if we were billionaires, we could have a direct link, but only one, you know? So at some point you have to share links. And that is you coming back to the internet because the internet is about sharing links. I and that is where the observability comes back in. Mm-hmm. Because the moment you have to share links, you have to deconflict links. And the deconflicting has to be done somehow. And it's the deconflicting protocol or authority that actually introduces the observability.
0: Okay. I so absolutely you're agree with you. At some point, fuck. <laughs> okay Okay. all yeah. right okay i wasn't throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying okay well like i'm just gonna use these rogue networks uh,
1: uh oh, I'm, I'm a fan uh, of rogue networks, so yeah. don't get me wrong i oh, know no, that so yeah. no no I, I i've i've done my quiet share of rogue networking you know from uh, laying fiber optics uh, over a, a jungle in, in Panama uh, <laughs> and uh, reusing actually dark fiber on the uh, Berlin subway.
0: Naughty which, boy. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, it, it, you have to do something to make living worth it, you know. But um, a lot of these things are really interesting in, um, in um, crisis scenarios. You know, in crisis scenarios, a lot of these things are amazing because our, usability, uh, our usage patterns actually change. You know, then it's about, you know, I want to get these 100 characters to my friend to tell him that I'm alive, you know? So, and that we can do. But um, surfing the internet, going to booking.com, um, watching Netflix, whatever those are usage patterns that are completely incompatible with, with that kind of, of, of infrastructure. So, um, and the other thing is like, um, when, when it comes to discoverability of, of data, when it comes to storage of data, when it comes to pre-processing, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things make um, a lot more economic sense if they are um, running on specialized nodes that serve multiple people. Um, because you don't have uh, um, a constant request rate as an individual but wow. you, you have peaks of interest and uh, peaks of usage etc and to be efficient you kind of want to um, harness the the moments between the peaks or you want to reuse the data between the peaks um, or the, or you want to reuse the data off the peaks so and that is why it makes a lot of sense to have, uh, things um, removed from the direct actually edge minus one, you know, or edge minus two, and it's actually um, every hop basically um, doubles the the nodes that you're serving more or less. So um, the, I mean, on the current internet, it's, it's actually more extreme. So the yes. first hop is like a factor of hundred, and then yeah. the second hop is maybe a factor of four, and then third hop is a factor of two, but um, so the the um, the increase of use uh, goes down uh, logarithmically. I think uh, depends a little bit on uh, how advanced the um, the, the um, area is in which you are uh, living. So in in Africa it's not logarithmic; it's more or less linear uh, in most parts of Africa. But uh, like in highly developed. Um, Nations, it's uh, logarithmic. So, and that makes a lot of sense because it it means that it costs less and less money. You know, with uh, less investment, you're creating more usage for more people. And in the end, whatever systems we build, we have to to not just set them up, we have to maintain them, we have to keep them secure, etc. There are costs involved with that, and um, that has to be uh, usually when we run you know, simulations of how great our mesh networks are going to be. All that doesn't matter, you know, because it's not part of the simulation. But in the moment you roll out stuff in the real world, things change dramatically.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Like, uh, you know, all of these all of these rogue networks, they, they, they seem to fail. Well, the economic side of things, uh, you can't just do it on goodwill, right? Um, so, yes, and do you have...
1: Bandwidth limitations, etc., 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 that
0: yeah. outcompete those
1: those networks unless you're really in a crisis situation. Yes, and the the economics change during crisis; they don't change during um, normal life.
0: Yeah. Um. Although, so so the way I'm sort of going to try. Uh, okay, look, this is all attempted hacking, and and literally, it's just just me sort of. Kind of having fun, but in a serious fun sort of way. Um, sure. M- my my rationale was uh, behind this is that okay, uh, uh, moving old people's data in the case of crypto hippie uh, hippie um, is not valuable enough. You know no, the so data. The data. That's why we're broke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly it. But so what? Okay, now let's uh, uh, This this can be a very um um. Uh, a polarizing thing that I'm about to bring up for, especially in technical circles, but like some might say that like Bitcoin data is actually some of the most valuable data, especially, you know, the transactions it's, it's important to you. It's a re- representation of your value that you are sending across the world. So then, if one makes like, for example, Bitcoin transaction to be first class, you know, th- that's the reason why this network is here is to secure these transactions, then you can sort of like, you know, hit your pony to that, to that, you know, that cart, uh, in the sense that um, uh, the, the community that would likely pick up this, uh, this technology would be, you know, a uh, 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 libertarian sort of like, you know, uh, people who want privacy and all of that sort of stuff, you know, they they see validity in this and it's essentially it's a market for them. And, and maybe what with the extra purchasing power they've got, they would also look into being able to create uh, these, uh, these non-observable links on the very edge of the internet that exist between them uh, and maintain and up, uh, you know, maintain those links because any data that gets routed across that, 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 that thing could incur a cost. So this now introduces this fundamental like economic model um, which could uh, very slow at start. I'm not saying it's going to be like a huge thing, but it, it, it fundamentally can start the, the, the early stages of, of something growing and being independent. Yeah,
1: it, What's your me, opinion on that?
0: Let, yeah, let me uh, shoot back at that. Um,
1: Please do. So, um, for value to exist, you have to do two things. Um, it's not just the, the usability uh, or the, the, the use function that that is important. Like how how valuable is the data for you? That's 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 not really what determines the price. It's also the availability that determines the price. And um, that's true. And when you look at something like um, Bitcoin blocks, or transactions, or whatever—they um, are widely available, um, and that makes their price near zero. So it's the it's the wide ability. So that is why I said before that crisis changes economics. You know, so crisis changes the economics in favor of something like rope networks, mesh networks, etc. Because then what happens is that um, the data has still its its usefulness. But its availability goes down, and that is where the price for the data goes up. You know, so then it makes sense for that data to travel a, a super expensive network. You know, um, but as long as the availability is there, um, you don't the 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 price for the data is close to zero. It's, it's really at the at the point where where data becomes rare that it actually Gains value in, in that model, so it, it has to be exceedingly rare already to actually get a price, um, because it's not um, a mass data use. So there's mass data use where um, it's the it's not the rarity of the data that, that makes it uh, expensive, but the the size of data that makes it expensive. Um, so that's for example, if you're uh, if you're looking at a sensor data, for example, or if you're um, doing surveillance, you know, the, the, the value of the data increases by its size. But, um, for, for something like Bitcoin blocks, that is not true. You know, it's, uh, nobody cares. Well, it's actually negative. If, if it's too much, the, 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 um, the usefulness would actually go down, you know, mm. but, um, so in, 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 when it comes to Bitcoin transaction data, um, it would only really come with a price if it already becomes exceedingly rare. Okay, so, so so at the at the moment of crisis, so you know if there's et cetera, etc., etc. Uh, and then the the question is also that um, yes, you would have value um, attached to that data and uh, to its timely delivery. It's not just the existence of the data, but it's the timely delivery of the data. Um, but then the, the, what also happens is that you are running into a scenario of competition. So there, there are various ways in which that data could reach you at different prices. And these are not just monetary prices. You know, there are things like uh, reliability. There are things like um, availability of, of the technology itself. There's uh, things like risk exposure. You know, if I'm caught using that technology, Keep in mind, we are talking about the crisis scenario, you know, uh, what is the the risk of me being caught with this? Um, So these things come into the the game as well, which um, my guess is, and actually the experience of of, uh, smuggling a lot of data over the last 20 years. Yes, the real smuggler um, is here. (laughs) Is that... um, you almost always find a way to communicate if you almost fi- always find a way to communicate in a way that is less suspicious. And the less suspicious ways of communication are usually the, the most efficient ones. You know, there's there's a reason why there's so much research in... Into stuff like um, covert networking and um, delay and disruption tolerant networks and um, data mules and uh, all that data stuff, drops. you know, rogue Wi-Fi, um and um, temporary exfiltration uh, infrastructures, which which is where where I come a little bit from. And uh, so there, it's almost always possible to move data. You know, it's uh, there are very few scenarios in which that becomes hard, and usually it only becomes hard at the at the borders, so to speak. So when you look at Kazakhstan, for example, you know, so in Kazakhstan the issue is that um, basically there's a handful of routers uh, sitting in the capital city, and if you disconnect them from power, there's simply no uh, global internet. But what still exists is local internet. You know, so. Um, yes, they, they have this issue of having a very star-shaped uh, infrastructure, but um, in most other countries uh, most other cities in, in, in the country, you can have local connections over the existing infra- uh, internet infrastructure because that is actually one of the things that the internet was built for. you know you can locally communicate even if the rest of the internet doesn't exist anymore. you know um, So if, if you're in the right city, you can, Every everybody can uh, happily share files and, and do everything over their existing uh, DSL lines, you know, um, because as long as you're not uh, connecting to something where there is no connection to anymore, you're happy, you know, so, and the problem is that, uh, of course, our data consumption is um is distance-oriented. You know, most of the data that we consume comes from very few points that have a large distance from us. And, that's, and again, it's an argument for for interest-based uh, communication. Is um, it would be enough to get this data to a certain city once again? You know, and then it will be available to everybody uh, without the need of mesh networking. Because in the end we already have this very resilient networking infrastructure. The problem is that it's the long links that get cut in a crisis. It's not the short links that get cut in the crisis. And the short links are the expensive ones, but they're already there, you know? And the other thing is that observability on the short links is usually not very established. So um, the... The communication between two clients of the same ISP that do a direct connection. Uh, there's almost uh, no view on that in most countries. You know, it's the getting out of the city or getting to the IX or getting across the border is where the net flow is really tracked, you know. But you know, where intelligence and, and secret police and whatever look at it, you know, but these little. Um, you're sitting on one side of the city. I sit on the other side of the city. We're using the same ISP, and we're communicating with each other. Um, that is usually usually undiscovered data. So, um, and we can use that. You know, we we can use that fact of the existing internet infrastructure uh, in all of these scenarios. And just to make a counter argument again against the. Um, against replacing that with whatever Wi-Fi links or whatever is, yes, they become economic in a crisis scenario, but in a crisis scenario, a different thing becomes economic. And that is the deployment of physical resources by your opponent. And that means today that you have a high-flying drone with sticking capabilities over your cities. And that thing captures every single Wi-Fi connection. And then you're actually doomed by using some a network like that. Because then we actually know exactly where to where to send the hellfire.
0: I was right about you. I'm I'm super happy I got this conversation with you, man. It's really, really interesting so far. Okay, so um just to just to go back a little bit regarding the the, the data that val, that val, val, valuableness, val, whatever value just value. the data value <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yes. so <laughs> just justifying moving the data over an expensive network so um the thoughts i were was having was actually uh, um it would be metcalfe's law in the sense that you can actually send uh, transactions to each other over something like lightning so you would implement lightning yes. on top of this so this this makes and and uh, let's just open that up anyway um and this makes uh, okay remember that in the current internet we we, we have a, 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 dist- a separation between the name the human readable name and the, you know the ip address and yes. as a result what happens is that uh, it promotes d- data dissemination monopolies. So it's much easier just for you to, you know, uh, put your blog post or, or on, on, on Amazon servers or your, your photographs on Facebook servers um, because, you know, they, they become the, the, the data dissemination uh, 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 monopoly in that sense.
1: Um, but not because of the addressability.
0: Did you say not because of the addressability?
1: Yes. That's not uh, the reason.
0: No, no, that no, it's, that's not the reason. Because what happens is you you create a uh a point because because I believe you can probably shoot me down uh, because of TCP/IP we've got a point-to-point communication system, which means that in order to 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 for for data to be communicated between me and you, I have to create a, a channel. And now what happens is that you create um, uh, n communication uh, uh, channels yes. between myself yes. and 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 facebook it's much easier just to go create one channel yes. for facebook and facebook has yes. optimized the fuck out of its system uh, exactly. uh, and via vc money and funding themselves by selling all your data to the government which is printing the money and keeping this there yes. you know their their, their little like uh, um uh who's the author of animal farm uh, george uh, orwell george orwell's dystopia in in full yeah. full full swing right so it's it's just easier to do that and as soon as you reduce that so that like data is actually bound to the public key um and and routing it gets routed to you you remove the rent seekers you remove the ability mm-hmm. for yeah yeah Okay. I, I Shoot think me
1: there's some yeah. I think there's a non secretary in there. So uh-huh. um, yes, you're you're right. So it's more efficient to have less links. So the you know that's 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 the way you get decentralization. Yeah. Is um, by concentrating links into hubs. So the bigger your hub is, uh, the more use you have to connect to the same hub. Yep. You know, that is that is network uh, effects, you know? Yep. So um, if, if you only have very few links to random people, the, the value of those links is, is relatively low while the cost is still existent. Um, but if you could connect to one hub that works most of the time, that's a condition basically, um, and that connects you to a lot of other people, that means that the amount of links you have to directly create while still having uh, the profit of being connected to a lot of people uh, goes up. So um, your, your link cost goes down uh, while still having the, the usefulness of the whole network. And that is where you get a centralization from. And that is always the case. So the I think the, the mistake that we often make is we think, oh, we, we create those networks that are permissionless, everybody can participate in them, hence they will be decentralized. But that is not true. Um, given the, the normal environment and normal economics, you always get uh, centralization. You don't get centralization in a single point. You get usually get centralization in two or three, sometimes five points. And the reason for that is um, is twofold. Number one is, um, Competition in 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 usefulness, you know. So, um, if you have multiple players on the market, they start competing with each other, and um, their hubs become more useful or less useful over time. And so, people um, kind of uh, connect to more hubs or 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 focus on certain hubs uh, based on their needs. So, you you usually have at least two players on, in a system. And the, the second thing that happens is that um, because no system is perfect, uh, you have failure. And people select usually more than one to be able to survive failure, or markets select more than one to survive failure. So, um, and that means that in, in most systems, you have these um, two plus nodes, but usually like central nodes, um, but it's usually uh, five or less. So it, it, you can actually look at a lot of uh, organically grown networks on the planet. Um, you can see that in, in organizations, you can see that in industry, you know, how many players do you have in a certain market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's usually this this model that is two plus, uh, but smaller than six. And that is goes everywhere, more or less. It's, it's even true for, for things like, um, Uh, Connections to watering holes. You know where where does deer go to to drink? You know you have a a similar distribution, and Uh, power laws. um, Yeah, because you have like mating strategies that are connected to that, etc., etc., etc. So um, the the world basically thrives towards um, weak centralization. So it's not uh, strong centralization in the sense that it's one point. Oh, I see. But it's a weak centralization in the sense of there are a couple of points. Well, it's a handful basically.
0: Yeah, economic um, forces and efficiency um, in in yes. ideal sort of peaceful times uh, uh, yes. drive this. But as soon as, as you yes. said, there's a calamity or something, then it can right crisis changes things. Crisis, well,
1: change. crisis changes changes things mostly because the the ter- the territory of operation gets fragmented. That is why crisis changes everything. Yes. So, um, and then you basically have the same kinds of distributions that spring up in those uh, under territories. So, and yes, of course, you have a, the total number of nodes goes up, but the um, the layout is still the same because when when you look at um, all kinds of networks, they're basically fractals. So, um, they uh, if you if you look at a uh, at a map of the internet. You know, not just where the links run, but uh, peering relationships, etc., etc. Those are fractals. They um, they they're, they have self-similarity. You know, they uh, the when you zoom out of them, you know, you see those uh, two to five big uh, centers. You know, and then, but if you zoom into the edges, you know, you you see those two to five. Uh, local centers, you know, and then we zoom yeah. in more, and then we see the two to five edge exactly. So, and and that is how it's it's basically a fundamental of the world. You know, there there are um, very logical laws that drive towards that. You know, yeah. it's the same thing with when you look at the lightning network. It it makes a lot of sense to have a channel with big hubs because it allows you to make payments to so much more people easily you know yeah um it's the same thing so there's a certain drive towards centralization or even if you if you look at a minor distribution it's the same thing you know there's a there's an upper bound luckily so there's a physical upper bound um, that is uh, determined by how much power you can get In In that region. uh, In that 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 region. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So that is creating an upper bound, basically. Um, And that is the only thing. So it's it's an outside upper bound that is forced on the system that actually maintains wider uh, distribution. And this, again, is the same thing as in the internet. You know, because the cost of links and state borders and uh, where do we have land links and where do we have to go uh, underwater, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is the same thing that creates those um, sub-distributions. Otherwise, the world would be a star network. You know, so um, and so it's the same thing everywhere, and I think that it's um, that the smart person keeps that in mind. You know, you you keep in mind that there is a form of natural centralization, and that natural centralization is not necessarily an evil thing. You know, it can be exploited in good ways, and it's up to us to exploit it in good ways. And that is better than wasting our time to start to uh, start to or try to decentralize over and over and over again. And the only thing that we actually do is we base our resources that would. Be required in us exploiting the centralization that already
0: happens. Right, right. So, okay, that's 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 great. Um, now, now uh, to go to another point that I, I wrote down over here, you were mentioning like um, as soon as you go into the interlink stuff. Um, across mm-hmm. this observable network. Well, you're fucked. Um, so what, what if... Well, like, if
1: you, you're fucked if that is the basis of your privacy. Oh, uh, yeah, sure,
0: sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that's the basis of your privacy. But I mean, like every practical network, you want it. It's a small world graph, right? You want to have mm-hmm. these occasional long-distance uh, links. Um, yes. and, and those are the ones that are going to be snip-snipped whenever there's a... Um, uh, 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 conflict or, or 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 problems in the environment yeah. so how about in the scenario i mean given that they can be seen so how about in the scenario whereby uh, the 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 long interlink is actually controlled by the enemy mm-hmm. but um, the connection that is made looks like an innocuous i don't know um, uh, clear text HTTP or right. SMTP or something or else but what's actually happening is you're getting stenographically embedded uh, uh, yes. uh, packets that are actually going across this thing um, yes that would that would that's an interesting uh, thing because I, I can create these little what, what I call links within my protocol um, it's a separate concept com- completely. You can ha- one yeah. one router can have many different kinds of links. I could yes. essentially create a uh, stenographically supported uh, TCP link, for example, or or a, yes. a SMTP link, or something like that. Yes, yes, that would so contribute, it, would it not? No, it it would uh, contribute dramatically.
1: And there's um there's another thing that that makes that uh, an interesting approach, and that is um. Data consumption asymmetry. There's a huge asymmetry between the amount of data that we produce and the amount of data that we consume. Yes. So, which means that a lot of and that one of the the, the reasons for that is most of the data that we produce is actually signaling data. Again, where we signal interest. So um, you go to a website uh, to read the news. You're not actually communicating any. F- um, like formal data, except for your interest. You know, You're the, the, just saying, hey, give me that website. And um, that call is a couple of, of dozen bytes. You know, let's say it's it's 100 bytes, you know? So that's all you do. And in the response, you get this three megabyte news site, you know? So, and the interesting thing, again, is the interest that you communicated is actually shared with a lot of other people. So what you can actually imagine, uh, and I think that is a, a, a thing to to really explore in the future, is to decouple the routes even more. So right now on the internet, there is no guarantee that your route is stable. So the the number of hops that you or the the hops that are between you and the target is a dynamic uh, collection, and there is no. Guarantee that the same hops that you send the package over are also the hops that you receive the package over. You know that is one of the powers of the internet, actually. So, and when you're talking about interest-based uh, communication, what you could actually do is you could use uh, telegraphic kind of methods to send your interest over this uh, widely accessible landline link, but that link is you know under threat and then use something like satellite broadcasting to uh, make the data available in your region. So it would basically drop down in into your city and then in your city, come back to the links, you know, um, because it's cached in your city. And so a combination of, you know, a little bit of Starlink here and a little bit of few beams there uh, combined with steganography um, that, that could go a long way. If, we are going away from this request, request response pattern that is end-to-end and instead make it a, a subscription or interest-based pattern of communication. Um, so that is, that is one, one interesting thing. And one thing that I should actually throw in there to make that more understandable and more uh, feasible is when we're talking about that, when I'm talking about data, I'm not just talking about static data. I'm also talking about code. Um, so you can edge distribute code today, because we have stuff like WebAssembly and stuff like that. So um, sending the program with the data is a realistic thing to do now. So, and that means that a lot of uh, services can actually be um, edge distributed. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. You know, but let's let's be really honest. You know, this is like um, we're talking about. Um, a technological change that if successful is going to make billions for everybody who's involved in it and is um, highly interesting for vcs etc cetera, etc cetera, um, and will basically fuck with every uh, current internet ecosystem we have but it will actually be better and it's actually realistic today it, it wasn't realistic 20 years ago today is realistic um, because, you know, advances in computing and hardware, et cetera, et cetera. And now coming back to, to your stick kind on of graphic uh, communication. The thing is, um, if you have enough data that you can hide in, you can always make a provable, ind- undiscoverable communication in it. So that's an yeah, that's another thing you know that we know since Shannon actually. So you know information theory goes a long way. You know you, you have to apply it a lot, but at some point um, you 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 find the spot where it becomes um, low probability detectable or extremely low probability detectable, but it's still enough bits that you can uh, transfer outside the compression window. So. And there, the funny thing is that the internet is actually better for that than uh, a lot of other things, because there is um, there we can transmit bits not just in our packages but also by the fact that we are sending packages. Uh, we can transfer bits by the timing of those packages. We can transfer uh, bits by um, by order of packages, which is a natural occurring thing on the internet, is that, that the order of, of packages gets gets fucked up. Um, and you throw in enough error correction and you can basically always exfiltrate data. As long as there is any link, you will be able to trickle bits through it. Um, and that is exactly what, what a lot of people do. like uh, A lot of the... Advanced, um, how you call it, cyber espionage campaigns, etc. Um, I mean, they, they data exfiltration is like one of the the high arts in, in the field, and there is a shitload of things you can do that are almost impossible to detect. And actually, it's becoming easier. And so, because you said before, um, you would send clear text around. No, no, you actually want to send. Um, Cryptographic material around because number one, it's the common thing. And number two is um, cryptographic protocols have so many parts that are required random that you can use f- to place data without it ever being provable that you placed it. Um, so, for example, you can uh, encode data into nonsense, you know, um, you can uh, use stuff like. Um, Wheat and Shaft protocols to to communicate bits. You know, it's like does a certain hash on a certain nodes produce a one or a zero as a first bit. You know, that's like the, the thing that you communicate.
0: Ooh, so, lots of computation um, there.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's not that big. Um, so if if you're looking at uh, modern computers that mm. have stuff like uh, on uh, on silicon hash uh hash generation, and um, you you look at the the standard non sizes in a lot of protocols they just coincide with a block size of, of the hash you know which means uh, it's a, it's two calls to the processor to actually process that And your network point, card eh? is actually able to do that That's so great you point. can actually af- offload it to your to your networking card because that same feature is is in a lot of networking cards because uh, we offload a lot of like routing decisions, security encapsulation, decapsulation, even IPsec, etc. You can offload to to, to better uh, networking cards. I mean, your your Ethernet card today is a computer. You know, it's not just I, I copy something from the file layer. You know, no, there's a a computer and the operating system on it and everything. And actually, a lot of these are open source. You know that's the reason why we have stuff like pxe bootloaders and stuff like that um and there's a whole universe of how you can make interesting data suddenly trickle out of your card fascinating
0: yeah oh man you you got me you got me so engrossed in that particular thing i didn't work out i didn't have a, a follow-up question um Uh, no, 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 it's fascinating how, how you can, how you can take something and just, just expand on it. Um, let me think a little bit, Uh, let me think a little bit, yeah, yeah, oh yes, I remember now. Okay, so you would, you were referring to actually distributing of, of code. Um, over the this, this yeah. same network. Um, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. So I'm, I'm actually using this networking protocol um, as the basis of a capability uh, um, programming language, which is similar to the mm-hmm. back in the day, uh, Mark Miller created something called E language, right? Which is a, mm-hmm. a capability based um, uh, a domain specific language implemented on the Java virtual machine. Um, and, and, you know, he, he's done a lot of foundational work in, in, in the, the underlying cryptography, uh, of these systems. So, so, mm-hmm. so now, now, um, imagine, imagine a world, you've got a device, which is rather similar to, um, uh, oh, it's not, mm-hmm. oh yes. Uh, and a device that's rather similar to this, um, that sort of sits mm-hmm. in your living room, right? Um, yeah. And little and Raspberry Pi. Yeah. yeah, something to that effect. And yeah. you know, it, it's running a unikernel which only supports mm-hmm. one process, which boots up mm-hmm. a virtual machine. And this virtual machine mm-hmm. um uh, executes a kernel language. This kernel language mm-hmm. has good support for capability-based programming, um, and is and and it pushes the concept of uh uh um, deterministic data flow. Uh, programming mm-hmm. to the very end. Now, what does that mean? That means that we can actually create these, uh, these systems, these distributed systems, which, which, um, whereby every single variable inside the programming language itself is a data flow variable. So the entire mm-hmm. programming language uh, um, uh, will continue. A- it's non-blocking. Eh? It's not blocking until uh, a, a data flow variable gets fulfilled. And that data flow variable might be on the other side of the world um, mm-hmm. in the form of this uh, using this protocol, which might have stenographic, uh, stenographic uh, links yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in between it. And it's all yeah. abstracted away. So you, as the application programmer, you actually don't give a shit about the security layer. You just write your program, your app, as it as if it you know as is. Um, and every single time you want to call in code, like you know, you import code, you import um, uh, a, a library into your system, you're actually using the 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 this cryptographic this capability. Uh, uh, thing as a first-class citizen inside the language so like Mm -hmm. public keys become first-class citizens I can Mm -hmm. say I've got this 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 um this closure and I want it to be shipped a packaged up and shipped off to the node that has this public key uh the 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 the, the private key associated with it and then it would just it would just it would just pull it across and then just like okay it's signed uh, it, it passed the integrity check. I trust this code. I will now execute this code. And then yep. it's, it's, it's sitting on, on that node, maybe in Panama that you've got running over yep. there. Um, yep. Man, that's an interesting new way of looking at things. Hey, But uh, hell, it's a lot of work getting this virtual machine working. I'm working on it right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things you might actually be interested is a project called Wasm Cloud.
0: I want to stay away from anything to do with the web people. The web people just fuck everything up. It has has nothing to do with web people.
1: Well, Wasm
0: is, you know, Wasm is all web stuff. Well, no, 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 no.
1: Uh, Wasm is um is a portable instruction set. That is all Wasm
0: is. Yeah, so. doesn't so, doesn't support tail uh, call optimization I need that I need tail calls <laughs> <laughs> sorry bro I need tail calls <laughs> okay whatever okay um, but the the the
1: the interesting thing is um, one of the things that they do uh-huh. is um, they have a, a call fabric where you can uh, have uh, different you know pieces of code that basically use um, a call fabric, so basically a contract, a a cryptographically secured contract that uh, interlinks those pieces of code. So um, you can basically push um, a VASM file into uh, one of those um, clouds, basically. And that VASM file can uh, tell other VASM files, hey, I'm providing a certain service, and this is my proof that I uh, am allowed to provide it. And um, then these different uh, VASM objects can call each other, and run uh, against each other, and um, including interfacing for networking, etc., etc., etc. So uh, what you what you can do is actually have these. So again, it's the the foundation is, is message based infrastructure, where you um, basically take the the technical addressing away and, and make it into a semantic addressing, an interest-based uh, addressing, and then have a proof of authorization uh, attached to, uh, am I allowed to consume it? Am I allowed to produce it? Whom am I allowed to, to send it to? From whom may I cons- um, subscribe it, Etc. Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So you, you have this, this fabric of very, very small bits of code that are living in a, in a in a substrate, so to speak, where they can talk to each other, but they can make sure that they're talking to the to the right um, other piece of code, and then uh, including stuff like being able to, to automatically or dynamically change an environment like that. You know, uh, updating very small modules uh, out of out of this fabric. You know, replacing them on the fly during runtime in a in a globally distributed manner. So it's it's not a single computer. It's you run it on hundreds of computers. Um, and including uh, stuff like the code moves to the computers that have most resources available and stuff like that. So you have rebalancing. So that is... Um, Work stealing. I think, yes. So it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's for sure a direction in which a lot of thought goes right now. You know, it's like um, the, the direct link between computer and code or code and communication is going away. So we're, we're, we're more and more moving towards this, this thing where um, code is an abstract entity within a network of communication. And that, that is especially interesting because we're you know, Java 20, 30 years ago, uh, however long ago made this promise, you know, you, you can code something and it runs everywhere. But the thing is, we, we are actually accomplishing that right now. Yeah. And it's one of the, the, the conditions uh, for, for such a, I don't even have a good name for it, you know, it's like um, fog, let's, let's call it fog computing, you know, so um, in, it's one of the conditions of, of this fog. And there's an interesting aspect to it, and the, the uh, like historically interesting aspect. And that is when you, when you look at um, the ideas that were floating, like the, the cypherpunk mailing list in the, in the late 90s, um, one of the, the big concerns of the cypherpunk was always um, temper resistance, temper evidence, and attestation. So how can we run code and trust it, you know? So even if it runs somewhere else, how can we trust it? And um, there was always like one of these, these big dreams was to, to be able to, to take a piece of code and maybe not even reveal it, you know? Send it somewhere else, have it executed and be sure that it is actually executed correctly. And, um Today we we try to do that, like with you know, homomorphic uh, circuits and stuff like that, you know. And I'm relatively skeptical there because um, what the fuck, anyway. um, But there's another thing, and the other thing is um, that trustable and attestable computing is actually a thing that is beginning to exist right now, and the reason for that. Is the fucking cloud uh, providers? Because everybody is moving everything into the cloud. The cloud has to provide uh, trustworthiness, and the only thing you can do that is actually by building all your processor infrastructure uh, into a trustworthy computer. And the thing is, those processors are not just sitting at Google; they're sitting under my desk, you know. And then things like I mean, I find it fascinating. I mean, it's still work in progress and. There's a lot of security issues still. You know, it'll probably need another five years. But um, look at something like modern uh, AMD processors. You know? um, Epic, for example. You know? So what do you have in Epic? In Epic, you have um, TPM hierarchies that allow you to do attestation of the whole call stack from the first bit up to the kernel in your virtual machine. So it's not just the host operating system that you can attest. You can attest the virtual machine. And um, you can um, transfer keys between TPMs and different computers so that the keys only become unlockable if the attestation chain on the other computer is valid. So you can actually transmit secrets uh, that only become available on the other machine if the other machine has exactly the characteristics that you... That you pre-computed, and you have stuff like um, on CPU on die RAM encryption. So so basically, the only unencrypted data that that exists is the 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 data that is on the registers and in the cache of the of the CPU, and um, everything else is encrypted. So all that part is on the die. And the die itself is is, is observing itself for for tempering, and um, tempering detection will uh, undermine the attestation chain, and the attestation chain basically blows up uh, your 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 VM there. So, in theory, at least, I mean, yes, there are implementation issues. You know, it's a a lot of the code that that is used there is. it's not the quality that, that we need, you know? But on the other hand, I, I think it's very realistic that we get the quality at some point uh, because it's um, it's a well enough describable problem and it's small enough that it actually makes um, sense there to use uh, provable programming techniques, you know, to, to, to actually prove that the code is according to specifications. Um, and we will sooner or later have that. You know, we will sooner or later have uh, a trust stack that is completely proven. You know, from the first bit to the last bit, will be completely proven, and it will incorporate things like unclonable physical functions that will actually make it possible for us to detect if you're running on a real computer or in a simulation and stuff like that. And um, that will allow us to have. Uh, movable code and movable data, that no matter where on the planet it executes, we will be able to trust it and it will stay secret. It will be unmodifiable and it will not leak any information. And that is a thing that, in my opinion, will hit within the next two to seven years. We will have a, a basis for that. And that that combined with something like you know, interest-based communication Will change everything fundamentally. You know, the we will, we will not talk about individual computers anymore. We will, we will talk about something like computing commons, maybe. You know, that you pay by demand, no matter where they are on the planet, and they will move to where they are needed, and not where they are currently hosted. You know. So and that will happen. And, and um, the the other thing that uh, an infrastructure like that also allows us is actually to make real micropayments between those systems possible. So right now, doing micropayments is is impossible to do in a in a trust or trust-reduced way. You know, forget about trustless, there's no trustless, there's only trust-reduced. So doing micropayments in a trust-reduced way. Is currently completely impossible, you know. But the moment we have a publicly attestable infrastructure, like cryptographically attestable infrastructure, we will be able to do those things at a very, very cheap uh, price. And it will open up uh, protocols that we cannot currently implement. And then we're probably fucked as well, you know. I'm not necessarily saying that's going to be a utopia, you know. (laughs) We're probably. Going to come up with a really good way of of making that into something terrible, but uh, it's it's technologically
0: interesting. <laughs> so that so those are the unknown unknowns, right? Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> Always keep them in mind. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah, they're out to bite you, man. That's what they do. So exactly. so uh, so you you mentioned like a T-T-TMP, uh, TPM, uh, uh infrastructure now now. I, I'm circumventing this to the best of my ability. I really, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 did, I, I did the whole, like, looked into the hardware sort of thing, and I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm going to have this little dongle here, and everything's going be, gonna to be, gonna be, you know, from this point downwards, I'm going to be able to have the entire thing, you know, attestable. And I was like, mm, yeah. fuck, I, I, I don't think I can take this battle, given that I want to implement the virtual machine, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I thought, you know what, just go with a unikernel. Yeah, and but, then distribute that as assigned with with maybe my key, and then you just flash it to your device and you run it.
1: Well, it, that not is, of enough. course, something that, that, well, it works as long as you have physical control. You know, if, and the physical control is this very specific thing, because so it doesn't really mean it, it, it sits in, it not only means it sits on your desk, but it also means that um, you Security can do it yourself. Yes, you know? yes, yes, so, yes, yes. <laughs> And so, but again, it's like most things, it's a probability game, you yeah. know? So um, if you can have a hundred of those nodes and only one is, uh, is untrustworthy, you know, that might be fully enough. You know, it's, we, we often have these very theoretical standards of how secure something has to be. Um, and those standards are usually unaccomplishable. But um, in, in most cases, probabilities are enough. You know, it's like in most cases, like 50% plus one is enough, you know? So, um, or 50% plus the number of computers that might break in the next week, you know, is enough. Um, and I think that is... It's it's something to remember from time to time because we often over-engineer the shit out of stuff yeah. to reach theoretical limits that number one we will never reach number two we don't really need you know yeah. so that's another thing we we actually never need certain standards and then we waste a shitload of time and, and everything to to do, to implement stuff that then fails to achieve them so yeah. um, I, I think there there's a um, as always, there's a gradient to to all of these things. You know, it depends on what you are running on it. You know, like yeah. whatever. I mean, if you're running an, an HSM that, that is controlling fifty billion US dollars, yeah, your security shall better be secure, <laughs> you know. Um, but if if it's about uh, sending big pics around, it's probably not not that important, you know, like Unless you're David Beckham or something, you know, then, then it becomes expensive. So, and um, that has to be kept in mind whenever we're for building systems. You know, it's they have to stay realistic and usable and payable and and all that. And um, yeah, that's that's there's there's space for a lot of features in, in the
0: digital ecosystem. Oh, tell me about it. So so you can start to feel like uh, there's an element of familiarity between us growing now. And you know, there's also an element of tiredness that's sort of happening now. It's, it's been very in, intense conversation. So I just want to sort of like, sort of run down uh, this conversation with one sort of like last sort of question. What Wait. what sort of future things do you see, future technological trends that you sort of see might be of interest, that are of interest to you, um, that you're quite optimistic about? Um, it's you know, Yeah. Is there anything else? Uh, sort of well, wondering? I don't know, because uh, every second day, I
1: wonder if I should leave uh, computing and become a farmer or something. Oh, um, tell me
0: about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know and, and, and I have the feeling that uh, everybody who's been in the game for more than 10 years kind of has that thought all the time so we, we might have a very um, unhealthy relationship with our jobs um, maybe I should go into psychology never mind um, technological trends um, yeah one of them I, I already mentioned so uh, Global publish subscribe right, infrastructure, right, interest-based right, right, right. uh, communication. Uh, I think that that's going to. It's the right way to go, and um, I, th- I think it will happen. the The other thing uh, also mentioned already is um, mobile code. Um, if trustworthy or not, execution doesn't really matter for a lot of use cases. Um, because um, parallel execution in in different trust domains is enough for for most cases, and then uh, basically you just uh, attach a, a cryptographic proof from time to time, and then you're happy. You know, you, you don't need much more. You know, yeah. Uh, so uh, as long as you're not controlling the Fed, it's good enough security. Um, I think that. Um, Trusted computing is 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 something to keep an eye on because especially because of the the forces that um, all the cloud computing, but also mobile phones are, are creating. You know, so the mobile phone security is introducing a lot of interesting aspects. So um, stuff like uh, open source um, hardware root of trust uh, systems are are a fascinating aspect to to look into. Um,
0: Volt one three one seven. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I'm not. So, so the, there's a hardened Linux project. Um, okay, Sean Chang. He's he's number seven. I've interviewed him number seven. He's he's one of my he's one of my good mates. He's he's part of the. We've got a man cave out here you know, It involves nice. cigars and lots of whiskey and and a oh, yeah, no, a lot no, of no. shit talking, man. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I can see and, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and then
0: <laughs> and. Uh, he, yeah yeah uh actually i think we got one probably coming up next week and it's going to involve a jacuzzi oh yeah <laughs> so i've heard and, worse <laughs> <laughs> ah, well we're we're this is a public talk right so <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah and he's he's doing a lot of he's doing a lot of this attestation stuff you know um, he's mm-hmm. got a thing called fault 1317 um um and then he's looking at that you know he does. He's, he's the founder of the Hardened Linux project. You should probably know. Oh, yeah yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so... Um, then, the, uh, mm-hmm. So I find, I,
1: find, I find that development fascinating. So, I mean, you, you know about Graphene OS, right? So... Uh, please repeat. One, I know about what? Graphene, graphene OS.
0: Graphene OS, um, yes, continue. Yes. But there's also... So, there's a fight between... Is it Copperhead OS or something?
1: Oh, the, that fight is long over.
0: So oh, it's like... So annoying. Come oh, on. Yeah.
1: Uh, hey. It, it happens you know you, you take two smart people you put them into the same room sooner or later they find something fight. to fight over you know it's normal so um okay, okay keep um, going but, is. But one of the, one of the things they 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 really did is um making your 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 system remotely attestable um like having an, an, an android phone that is remotely attestable where it can actually or even with the second phone locally attestable, uh, where you can basically have assurance that your system is not um, compromised in the early stages, um, and that it, those are things that um, that an open source project does that and makes it widely available to people is, a, is an interesting change, and I think it will stuff like that will show up more and more, you know, and. That will change a lot of um, security assumptions. It will change a lot of um, assumptions that we can make about how to create systems. Uh, so it's a, it's a thing to, to, to look at. Another thing that I think is really interesting uh, and, and will have an, an interesting, um, will change interesting things is uh, satellite internet. So um, the various constellations that are coming up there right now, especially uh, when you keep in mind that they're built for uh, in-space measuring, so that, that they will route uh, a lot of the traffic in, in space instead of just being a bent pipe,
0: a pipe. Um, yeah, but so that's, I, that's, I think... that's that's dependent on Elon Musk and he's pretty well known for being a bit of well, a scammer, it, that guy.
1: Well, he, it's not just him, you know, it's like ah, a couple yeah. of constellations mm-hmm, going mm-hmm.
0: on. So, um,
1: and the the interesting thing is sometimes you need a scammer to wake up the market because everybody <laughs> else thinks that they have to compete with a scammer <laughs> and then <clears throat> you get your shit anyways, you know? I mean, Dude, go into so.
0: psychology, man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, And um, so if I find that uh, interesting, there there might be interesting things. But I think that um, actually one of the, like when it comes to fascination, um, what I find extremely fascinating is um, certain legal changes around how to do data shit. Um, So for example, what, what I'm super fascinated with is this development of, of uh, cyber embassies, where you can basically, as a state, uh, create a data center in another state and declare it uh, extraterritorial. Wait a and, second, what is this? Well, exactly. And um, that is a thing that has now happened like f- three or four times. Um, And there's like a a country that has become a provider for stuff like that. And I'm kind of thinking that give it a few more rounds and other countries will realize that selling their sovereignty to data centers is actually an interesting business.
0: And that will fuck up a lot of things. Have you ended what you were going to say? Like, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the explanation? Like, so, give me more details. Okay, so how is this? So, which country is 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 allowing these uh, sovereign sort of Luxembourg, Luxembourg. Oh, is that so? Okay. Yes. So, so uh, all of these, Luxem- all of these. Okay, let's call them digital citadels. Let's call them <laughs> citadels. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, <laughs> and then so these citadels have been um, registered in Luxembourg,
1: right? All so, 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 basically, what what it means is that uh, a country like um, Estonia,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, that is like very digitally focused, blah blah blah, um, they go to Luxembourg and say, "Hey, we want a, a piece of a data center, and we'll
0: declare it Estonia." And oh, and but th- th-
1: that means thing- that
0: means Luxembourg will only recognize uh, 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 what W uh, 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 s- 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 registered countries, right? According to well, right,
1: right. So it's it's basically all based on um, extending um, like diplomatic law. rights to, to uh, infrastructure. Okay. Um, so and uh, Monaco has done the same thing. You know, they they moved the data center into Luxembourg and declared it Monaco. And um, the the interesting thing is, if you if you think about it, you know, think about a big data center where you have like a cage for the US, a cage for China, and they're basically next door to each other. And um, that is a a potentially really vile thing that can happen there. Um, And that's something that you you were asking for things that I find interesting or to look at. It's one of the developments I, I strongly look at. I think they're there might they might um, accidentally create scenarios that we can exploit. And I will always help them to create those fuck-ups. So... <laughs>
0: Well, as the real smuggler says, I mean, surely smuggling data between those, just like within a data center suddenly becomes a lot easier. Is that right? (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) potentially. (laughs) And it also creates these these crazy things that um, you suddenly not only have multiple jurisdictions uh, in one data center, but they're also creating jurisdiction-less spaces out of necessities. You know, because it's, it's common infrastructure between multiple jurisdictions. So you, they become basically anarchic. So, um, like all of the, the world system really is, you know, I mean, the, the system between states is anarchic. And if they, um, and that is something that might actually be really exploitable. So, um, imagine you have something like uh, mobile code. That uh, switches between the US, China, Russia, et cetera, uh, with a latency of 1.2 milliseconds. Right? So,
0: and that is something that I find highly interesting. So now, now let's 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 further this use case. Like what, what, what could one do with that? Okay, now you've got this latency drop massively. What, what would you do with that? Well it, it
1: basically means that you, you're breaking um, below the threshold that you know for localization.
0: Yeah, so basically there's a whole bunch of stuff. It, it it's it's a whole new it's a whole new world.
1: It's a whole new world. It, it basically means that you can run code that cannot be located to your jurisdiction at any you, you cannot um, link. Which processing step has been happening in, in which jurisdiction?
0: I start to appreciate what you are saying now. Yeah, and let's not talk more about that. That's it's fine. an
1: exercise for the listener. That, you know? that's...
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, next subject. <laughs> Dude, that's a very interesting. Uh, okay, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned Oh, do, do you have anything else like that?
1: Uh, I I have to keep a few things for
0: myself. No, that's fine. That's okay. (laughs) Jonathan, it's been absolutely wonderful. It's very rare to find somebody with such a deep knowledge of the internet and and the workarounds and all the problems associated with it. Like every single question that I've thrown at you has come back with like high signal. Very rare to find us. I'm glad to have made your acquaintance. Thank you. It was fun and w- w- next time i'm in your part of the world i expect we're gonna have a beer i expect it no no
1: i think you promised me jacuzzi whiskey and cigars <laughs>
0: <laughs> well sir i've got right th- i've got the right gang the right sort of people you'd just love to hang out with so next time you're out in hong kong look me up man we're gonna go and that jacuzzi sure. whiskey and there'll be a whole bunch of other vices there too <laughs> beautiful <laughs> okay this let's, let's let's wrap up this thing now I'm just gonna stop recording <laughs>